Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, hello everyone. Welcome back to the Dis- Disability Study Channel on New Books Network. So I'm still your host, Shu Wan. Today, I feel very excited to introduce Dr. Hogan to our podcast, and he will introduce his fantastic book, Disability Dialogues, Advocacy, Science, and Prestige in a Post-War Clinical Profession. So my first question for Dr. Hogan will be, um, will be just invite you to introduce yourself to our audience. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, so uh, my name is Andrew Hogan, and I am the Henry W. Casper Professor of History and an associate professor in the Departments of History and Medical Humanities at Creighton University. Uh, and you know, my background is in the history of science and medicine, but over the past eight or 10 years, I've moved much more into dis- history of disability and disability studies. So thank you so much. So my next question will be, um, I want to invite you to talk about the reason why I began to take interest in the promising field of disability studies. Great, and thanks for having me, Shu. I'm really excited to talk about this and talk about my book. I, 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 I'm going to go back a little bit and say that my, my dissertation was actually on the history of medical genetics. And when I was doing my dissertation and presenting on it, a number of people raised the question, you know, where is the disability history in this history? I, I was looking at the construction and the understanding of various genetic conditions, including fragile X syndrome and others of that type. And a number of audience members sort of pushed me to think more about disability. And I was convinced that that was an important thing to do. So when it came to envisioning a second book project um, about a decade ago, I decided to focus on disability and to focus on evolving perceptions of disability within clinical professions going back to the 1940s and 50s. And, you know, what I learned in doing this research is that people with disabilities have been pushing scholars in these directions for a long time to think more about disability and that I was lucky enough to be one of those people to be pushed in this direction by disability activists. And I'm really happy with with the direction that my research has gone as a result. Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Hogan. So then let's go to your books. 
So my first question about your book is that I want to invite you to talk about the powerful self advocacy of multiple post-war disabled clinics, um, psycho, um, sorry, psychosis, who push for more sub, sub, sorry, supportive, accepting, um, psycho, psychopolitical and identity-based view of disability within their discipline. Great, thank you. I, let me just sort of preface this by saying that the book focuses on three clinical professions, clinical psychology, pediatrics, and genetic counseling. And we'll talk about all three of those today. And the book, the way it's structured is the first three chapters look at all three of those fields in a more general way in mostly the post-World War II period. And the second three chapters of the book uh, look at specific case studies within those three fields from the same era. So <clears throat> when I talk about my work on clinical psychology, and this is true throughout this book, the story really begins with the archives and what I was able to find in archival collections. And I was really lucky with this book. And, you know, now that I've moved on to a new project and been working on it for a few years since finishing this book, I've really come to appreciate how fortunate I was in doing the research for this book in the quality of the archival collections that were available and their accessibility. And it really helped me to tell much richer stories than I otherwise could have. So my first chapter on clinical psychology and on self-advocacy in clinical psychology really starts in the archive. And I spent a, a fair amount of time in the American Psychological Association's archives in Washington, D.C. when I was researching this book. And the archivists there were extremely helpful and extremely generous with their time and with the resources that they had and it happened that there was a box that was on a disability committee that had been formed in the American Psychological Society and developed and, and influenced various ideas and policies during the 1970s and 80s and 90s. And within those records, I began finding, quite fortunately, the voices, the letters, of various disabled psychologists who, you know, wouldn't generally come up in or at least identify themselves as such in the peer-reviewed literature. And, you know, disability is so often um, hidden or, or silenced in, in peer-reviewed literature of scientific and clinical fields. And so you really have to go to the archives or at least the, the gray literature, the professional magazines and newsletters uh, of a field to sort of find these voices and these perspectives. And I was very lucky to hit upon a find, a number of letters written by a disabled psychologist named Alice Riger. And she, she was a wheelchair user and she clearly experienced various forms and saw various forms of discrimination and lack of access within the psychology profession over the course of time. She noted that, that though psychology conferences were relatively accessible, especially the APA conference, uh, that a lot had been accomplished in that regard, that a lot of workspaces for psychologists were not accessible that a lot of university spaces where psychologists went to do research or to teach students or to give presentations were not accessible. And perhaps most importantly for her, <clears throat> um, 
a lot of psychology training programs were not accessible. And here I'm talking about PhD level clinical psychology programs. And so she wrote a lot of different committees within the APA and, and she sought to make this very clear and straightforward point that that you wouldn't that the APA certainly wouldn't stand to allow a psychology a psychology training program to to discriminate on the basis of race, to not allow a, a black student or a student from some other minoritized racial or ethnic background into the program simply because of that. And so how could the APA possibly allow and accredit psychology training programs that, that discriminate on the basis of disability? Um, and so she made this very strong argument for accessibility. And she, she wrote... Among other groups, she wrote the Accreditation Board of APA. She also wrote the Ethics Committee of the American Psychological Association. And they responded to her and they said, you know, look, this isn't an ethics issue. This is a legal issue. Um, and I found that very interesting in and of itself because what their position was that ethics was exclusive to the individual, that an individual could act unethically. And that was in the domain of the ethics board. But if a psychological institution, the APA or, or a school was acting unethically, that that was not in the realm of what the um, Committee on Ethics covered. And so they said, look, this is a legal issue. And I thought that was striking in the broader sort of history of psychology, that there's a tendency in psychology to really sort of focus on, on the individual and to ignore structural and social and political aspects of, of, of the world. And yeah, I saw it coming through in this case as well. So Alice Rager was an important figure in this regard. Um, another important figure who I came across and who comes up in multiple chapters of this book because she's so important and so all over the place in this history is Adrian Ash. And Adrian Ash had many identities over the course uh, of her life. Uh, she was born and soon after birth was blinded by, by a medical intervention. And so she lived her entire life as a blind person, uh, as a completely blind person. And uh, she, she said very clearly that as a child, she was very well supported. She had good education. She came from an upper middle class family, a white family. But <clears throat> when she tried to break into um, the, the world of employment in, in, you know, the 1970s and eighties as a blind person, she found it very difficult. And one of the fields that she pursued as, as a young person was counseling and psychology. And she did a, a, a PhD in clinical, uh, social, I should say social psychology. And she wrote about her experiences during the 1980s as a disabled person in the psychology field and was very clear about the fact that she was made to feel like an outsider, that she was made to feel like she didn't belong within psychology at a psychology conference, that she struggled to find jobs, uh, among other things, and, and really sort of wrote strongly from the perspective of a psychologist and wrote in what we would today call more sort of broadly and commonly an intersectional way, acknowledging that she as a upper middle class white educated 
person who is disabled had a lot more opportunities than people from minoritized or impoverished backgrounds. And she was also very clear that she had many identities, that she was also a woman, that she was also Jewish, that, that she was also white, but that for everybody who interacted with her, her disability became the defining feature. And she wanted to push back on that. She wanted to be more than a disabled person at the same time that she was very much uh, embraced the identity of disability and was a disability activist who spoke very loudly and prominently about her views. And, and so there's just so many of these stories that, that came through of disabled people who really struggled to, to first, of, first and foremost, become and practice as psychologists. And secondly, who struggled to make the psychology profession a, a more inclusive and welcoming and supportive place for disabled people. And, you know, just one other quick example is Irving King Jordan, who was a, a deaf psychologist. And he actually went on to become the first president of Gallaudet University, which is, is the nation's longstanding university for the deaf. But they didn't have a deaf president for over 100 years. And he, as a 21-year-old, was involved in a motorcycle accident, which made him deaf. And at that point, a lot of his professors told him, look, we know that you wanted to become a psychologist, but you can't, that, that deaf people can't do psychology. And he managed to push through and by the 1970s and 80s was one of just a handful of deaf psychologists in the entire country. And when he got to Gallaudet, he was able to start there the first clinical psychology program that was truly supportive of deaf people and trained deaf people to practice psychology for deaf patients, um, which by and large was not an opportunity that existed uh, until that time. And then, of course, went on to be selected as the first deaf president of Gallaudet University. And so there's just a number of these examples that come through in this chapter and there's others which i think i wanted to start with this chapter and these stories because i wanted to put disabled voices up front and i really liked how inspiring a lot of these stories were at the same time that they revealed a lot of the barriers that disabled people faced okay thank you so much for your i mean both your introduction of the background of your research and the, I won't say the, the discrimination and the difficulty encountered by disabled psychologists in the United States. So my second question, I mean, I won't say regarding your second chapter, my question is that could you please talk about uh, the complaints to increase pediatrics' interest in research, training, and services involving children with, I mean, developmental disabilities? Yeah. And... Here, once again, I, I want to say that I was very fortunate about what archival materials existed to, to do this research. And, and here, I, I sort of knew a little bit of what was out there in advance from doing my first book project. And the place I knew I needed to go for doing this research, well, there are two places. I needed to go to Johns Hopkins Medical Institute's, their archival collection, which I did, and really benefited from just the generous support of the archivists there. And I needed to go, of course, like I needed to go to the APA for the first chapter, I needed to go to the American Academy of Pediatrics and their archives in Chicago. And 
I was just really lucky once again that <clears throat> that the AAP welcomed me in and let me sit down and see so many things from their archives and their excellent collection and had an archivist there who was ready and willing to, to help me out. So <clears throat> I think to really understand this chapter, you have to understand that in the 1950s, pediatrics was very much detached from caring for children with disabilities and developmental disabilities in particular. <clears throat> and, you know, I, I started the chapter with, with the story uh, of, of a pediatrician in New York City named Margaret Giannini, who, as a very young pediatrician in the 1950s, was shocked by the fact that she had parents coming to her who had children with developmental disabilities who could not find a pediatrician, who could not find a place to take their child who had developmental disabilities. And I'm not talking necessarily about they couldn't find a pediatrician who specialized in that because there were very few, but they simply couldn't find a pediatrician who would see a child with developmental disabilities who also had a cold or who also needed just basic pediatric care, right? And so Giannini, um, having sort of, come face to face with this challenge, with this advocacy. And it's worth noting that that what is today called the ARC, what then was called the Association for Retarded Children, began at this time in New York City with parent activists supporting, looking for support for their children with developmental disabilities. And so it's very likely that there was an overlap in those two histories. So what Giannini decided to do as a young pediatrician is, is she opened a clinic for children with developmental disabilities. And initially, she only saw children once or maybe twice a week. And she had to negotiate for clinical space at, at New York Medical College to even do this. And they, they gave her some room in the basement with a separate entrance because the assumption was that nobody else wanted to see these children or know that they were getting care there or put up with their behavioral differences or anything like that. And so she was very much isolated. But over the course of time, as there was more and more demand, she expanded her practice further and further until this was her full-time gig, caring for children with developmental disabilities. And eventually, she was able to find money, and eventually there was federal money available, to build a separate building for this very purpose. So there were a number of pediatricians in the 1950s and 60s who recognized that this was a major problem, that, that the field of pediatrics was not providing care for children with developmental disabilities, that there wasn't expertise in this area, that there wasn't an interest in working with these children, but obviously that there needed to be. And you had a few pediatricians who really sort of pushed the envelope on this. And what they recognized was that disability in this period, you know, this is still, this is post-World War II, but it's still a period in which sort of eugenic perspectives are strong and influential, and people and families with disabilities are very much looked down upon by, by society and excluded and have very little in the way of, they have nothing in the way of rights to get their children integrated into schools or anything else. And so pediatricians are sort of following this societal trend by not really engaging with children with developmental and families with developmental disabilities. And so a really key figure in trying to change this is a pediatrician named Robert Cook, who was a, a, a leading pediatrician at Johns Hopkins University during the 1960s, 50s and 60s. And 
Cook was uniquely interested in these issues because he himself had two daughters who had significant developmental disabilities. He, at the time, he didn't know this, uh, but they had what today we know as Creduchat syndrome, which is a chromosomal abnormality. And if you want to know more about that, you can read my first book, Life Histories of Genetic Disease. So <clears throat> Cook had two daughters, um, Robin and Wendy, who had Creduchat. And he, unlike he and his wife, unlike people of their class and their level of education at this time, kept their daughters at home uh, until they were teenagers, which was pretty unusual for, for this significant uh, of a disability. And so Cook was very much interested in improving support for children with developmental disabilities like his own daughters. And what he recognized, having come up through Yale University for, for his training and now at Johns Hopkins, was that if you wanted to get pediatrics interested in disability, you had to enhance the prestige associated with studying disability and specializing in disability. And so he looked for ways to do that at Johns Hopkins and more broadly. And he was fortunate because he had really good political connections. And and Edward Shorter has already written about this to some degree, that he was tightly connected to the Kennedy family. And the Kennedy family, like the Cook family, had a child, an adult at this point, with disabilities. Rosemary Kennedy, who was, as a young woman, lobotomized and by her father and had significant mental challenges as well as intellectual challenges before and especially after this lobotomy and was institutionalized. And the Kennedy family was very quiet about all of this, but one of John and Robert's sisters, Eunice Kennedy Shriver, Eunice Kennedy Shriver, because she married Sergeant Shriver, was very concerned about this and increasingly open about Rosemary and about disability and about the fact that people with disabilities were were overlooked and, and, and stigmatized and excluded in society. So Robert Cook and Eunice Kennedy Shriver got to know each other, and they had these common family experiences. And around the time they got to know each other, first of all, there was already a foundation that Eunice helped to run, named after her eldest brother, who had died in World War II. And the John F. Kennedy, or excuse me, the, the, um, the Edward, I'll have to go back to you on the name. But the Kennedy Foundation. And uh, they were already focusing on uh, on children with and adults with developmental disabilities. And so, so Shriver and Cook were looking to find ways to fund greater research and bring greater prestige to developmental disabilities um, in the pediatric world. And then, of course, John F. Kennedy was elected president in November 1960. And so then the federal government got more involved and there was more investment there as well. And Cook was really central in helping to write the legislation that became the, the, the legislative acts that really invested significant money in building the infrastructure, which we still have with us today, for supports for children with intellectual and developmental disabilities and research in this area. And so you can see the ways in which um, Cook's real interest in bringing prestige and money to this area that was so, so much of a backwater in the 1950s was really central 
to making uh, pediatrics a leader in developmental disabilities. And, you know, pediatricians really wanted to have this leadership role in developmental disabilities, even though they had been in many ways isolated from it and sort of let psychiatrists and other fields sort of handle developmental disabilities, which often led to the institutionalization of children. <clears throat> and this is connected to the broader debate over institutionalization and pedi pediatricians work in the community. They don't work in institutions. And so if they were going to play a greater role in developmental disabilities, they also had to promote the idea that children, especially preschool-aged children, needed to stay at home um, when they had developmental disabilities. And maybe they would be institutionalized later. But if pediatricians were going to play a role in care in this area, then it behooved them for children not to be institutionalized, at least right away. And so Cook and other pediatricians really sort of promoted that idea during the 1960s. And this opened up a space for pediatrics to do a lot more work in the area of developmental disabilities and opened up spaces for pediatricians of the next generation to really become leaders in this area. And here we had, and I, I described this book in the book, there's a number of pediatricians who really became leaders um, in this area in the years ahead, that you have people like Constance Battle, whose daughter Ursula had developmental disabilities, and Carl Cooley, whose daughter Sarah had Down syndrome, and others like that who really sought to lead reform and approaches for pediatrics to do a better job in connecting with parents and, and offering better support and, and better diagnoses and better connections to social resources for children and families with developmental disabilities. And once again, some of the leading figures in this, um, another person, Siegfried Puschel, who, whose son Christian had Down syndrome, uh, these parents who were themselves pediatricians and who themselves had children or in some cases siblings, Brian Scottco is another example of this, whose sister Kristen has Down syndrome, uh, they really were leaders in reshaping the pediatrics field towards more inclusive and supportive viewpoints and services for children with developmental disabilities. Okay, thank you so much again for your discussion and answer to my question. So now let's turn to your third chapter. So my question for this chapter is about the contested history of clinical and community-based disability advocacy in genetic counseling. Yeah, so my next chapter, of course, focuses on genetic counseling. And... Genetic counseling is quite different than, than the other two fields. That pediatrics and clinical psychology were very much established in the early 20th century. And, and by, by the, the post-World War II era, and especially the late 20th century, were quite large and well-established and well-understood fields. Um, Whereas genetic counseling is a very new field, really still. Uh, it's only just over 50 years old, 55 years old almost, in, in its modern form. And you know, genetic counseling was started at, at Sarah Lawrence University outside of New York City. And, 
And the field, and it's a master's level field, really started in part because administrative officials there were looking for ways in the late 1960s to attract um, women who were whose children had gone off to school to come back to college and, and to, to pursue additional degrees. And one of the sort of ideas that they came up with was, well, we could sort of invent this field and this master's degree where we train women to have some degree of expertise in genetics and counseling, and then they would probably get hired by... <coughs> by physicians who are doing genetic diagnoses. And, you know, at this time, there wasn't really much genetic diagnosis to do. Uh, There weren't, you know, we didn't have genomic studies. We didn't have molecular genetics. We just barely were starting to have some degree of chromosomal analysis in the late 1960s, and early 1970s. And there were some biochemical tests that could be done in utero or after birth in order to identify genetic disorders. And so genetic counseling is very much sort of a new field and a field in formation in the late 20th century. And that becomes part of the story, that there's this question of like, who really are genetic counselors? And it's worth saying that Genetic counseling wasn't actually new in 1969. There were already people out there who called themselves genetic counselors. They they were physicians. They were physicians who specialized in medical genetics and had developed this role in the 1950s and 1960s uh, of counseling families about basically the risk of having a child with a particular condition. And in this case, we're talking mostly about families that already knew that they had some condition, say, Tay-Sachs or something like that, that ran in the family. And these physicians who call themselves genetic counselors had this role to play in, in saying, well, you know, you have a 25% chance of having another child with this condition. And so at this time, they would say, so you might consider not having another child uh, because there's not really much we can do. And they were also aware that Down syndrome uh, was a condition that was more prevalent when pregnant women were over the age of 40. And so they might counsel a woman about that as well. <clears throat> but they, they had a, a relatively limited role in actually being able to accurately predict an outcome of a, a pregnancy in advance. So a battle ensued over who genetic counselors really were. And ultimately, the master's level profession, and this spread well beyond Sarah Lawrence to many other schools during the 1970s and 80s, became genetic counselors. And uh, in my book, I refer to the physicians who played this role who still existed as medical geneticists, just to sort of clarify this. And they, by and large, sort of gave up the term genetic counseling as it became associated with this primarily women's master's level profession. So there's this question of like, who are genetic counselors? Are they primarily experts in genetics, or are they primarily counselors? And these are two sort of very different things, right? That an expert in genetics has a very strong scientific and medical background, and an expert in counseling has more of a psychosocial background. And, you know, I've had a lot of genetic counselors today who are interviewed, and I interviewed about 75 people total for this book, probably 20 or 25 genetic counselors 
who who said to me, you know, we probably wouldn't call the field genetic counseling if we started it today. We'd probably call it genetic consulting or something like that. And the point there is that the counseling aspect of genetic counseling has always been quite peripheral. And the genetic expertise aspect of genetic counseling has always been kind of the central theme. Now, this is all to say that if you look at the history of genetic counseling and you look for disability advocacy and awareness in genetic counseling, you're more likely to find it among, and this is what I found and what I described in, in, in this chapter, you're more likely to find it among the genetic counselors who, and the, the sort of small cohort of genetic counselors who are much more interested in the counseling, or at least are very much invested in this counseling aspect of genetic counseling, in addition to the genetics part, right? And so I, I follow the history of a number of individuals in the genetic counseling field in this chapter who sort of embrace, who are somewhat outsiders in their interests. Often they weren't even actually trained in genetic counseling themselves, but they ended up going into the field from a counseling background or from a biology background and starting programs. And those programs um, were somewhat unique and different than other genetic counseling programs. And, you know, this includes people like Judith, Judith Sipis, who started the Brandeis genetic counseling program. She was a biologist by training, not a counselor, never truly a genetic counselor uh, in a clinical sense. And, and she, she had a child who had developmental disabilities and, and started a program with the interest in mind of making genetic counseling more aware of this issue of, of developmental disabilities and how to counsel around this issue. Or another was Beth Fine. And Beth Fine was actually trained here in Omaha and then eventually went on to start a genetic counseling program at Northwestern University in Illinois. And she too was very much interested and invested in bringing disability perspectives to the genetic counseling field. Now, when genetic counselors in the 70s and 80s tried to engage with disability advocacy with parents groups, say a Down syndrome parents group or something like that, they often were made to feel out of place because parents groups during this period tended to look at genetic counselors as people who exist and who jo- whose job it was to prevent the form of disability that their child had. And now, some parents of children with disabilities would prefer not to have a second child with that form of disability, and, and we're happy to have the knowledge and the testing available to avoid it. But simultaneously, a lot of parents of children with disabilities felt that genetic counselors were part of sort of a search and destroy mission or a stigmatization mission uh, towards disability and, and felt that that the stigmatization that the existence of prenatal diagnosis and selective abortion, which genetic counselors were central to providing, um, its mere existence had negative impacts for, for their children and the way that their children were seen and the way that the choices that they made, if they made them, um, or not, were were perceived by society. And so initially, genetic counselors were asked, like, what are you doing here? Why are you at this group? 
And what genetic counselors kind of had to do was to say, look, I, I can be a supportive person as well. I can offer you some degree of expertise in caring for your child and understanding their condition in linking you in with other interest groups who may be helpful for you. And importantly, in going back to my training program or to my colleagues or to my conference or to my national society and making the case for why greater disability advocacy and awareness among genetic counselors is important, even if genetic counselors do play this central role, especially as they did in the 1980s in uh, facilitating prenatal diagnosis and selective abortion. Uh, and so in this chapter, I really wanted to highlight some of, and I do this also in, in chapter six on genetic counseling, and so we'll come back to it more later, highlight some of the, the tensions that exist in genetic counseling that intersect with the issue of disability, particularly around what is a genetic counselor's role and identity and what do we do? And to the extent that the role and identity of genetic counseling is rooted in genetic knowledge and in facilitating informed choice, there is a tendency to sort of see disability as something that is not necessarily something that genetic counselors should engage with, that it perhaps even is somewhat, um, that it disrupts their objectivity if they have too empathetic of a view of disability. And, and, and what ended up happening, and I, I account for this in the chapter, is when certain genetic counselors would try to write more empathetic or positive descriptions of various forms of disability, uh, whether that be something like Down syndrome or trisomy 13 or trisomy 18 or something like that, they would get pushback from their colleagues who in a book review or something like that in, in you know, the genetic counseling newsletter would say, look, this is an overly rosy view of, of this disability. This disability is really bad and it should be prevented. And, and so their objectivity and, and their proper place and role was very much questioned by their colleagues and by the leadership of their organization, if they were of the National Society of Genetic Counselors, was, was very much questioned in, in circumstances in which they were trying to promote these more positive and inclusive uh, views uh, of disability. And, and so there, there was a real tension there, which... I, I set up in chapter three and then sort of continue to explore in chapter six. So we can come back to that. Okay. So, oh, Dr. Hogan, thanks so much for your answer again. So let's go to the chapter four. So my question is about the disagreement in a political, sorry, in a post clinical psychology concerning diagnosis and the interventions related to intellectual and developmental disability. So, you know, in this chapter, as really with every chapter, I wanted to dig more into this issue of how the role and identity of a scientific field, a clinical field, but also a scientific field, influences perceptions on disability. And, you know, clinical psychologists, and especially a certain strain of clinical psychologists who, who I studied in this chapter and who specialized in developmental disabilities uh, had very strong sort of scientific orientation that they were often experimenters. Some of them were experimenters in, in animal models 
uh, among other things. And they had a strong association with science and the scientific method and objectivity. And in this chapter, I really sort of focus on the ways in which new disability narratives, more positive and inclusive disability narratives, which were filtering into the psychology field at this time, once again, often because of parent advocates who who were seeking to to introduce these and to change the narrative in their fields. And 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 Rudd Turnbull, who was the president of the American uh, who was a, a key, uh, the president of the American Association on, on Mental Retardation in the 1980s, um, he had a son with developmental disabilities named Jay Turnbull. <clears throat> he was a major figure in this, trying to change the narrative. And a lot of clinical psychologists were very concerned about this. And they were concerned about this because they saw their professional organizations moving in this direction and they felt like they were being left behind. Um, because they saw their methodologies and their modes of measurement being challenged, and they felt like they were being left behind, because they felt like the the objectivity of their way of understanding disability and what caused it and what to do about it, how to measure it, and how to classify it, was being challenged. Um, and you know, this came through in terms of the way in which intellectual disability was classified based on IQ score. Psychologists were very attached to the IQ score. They had been using it for quite a long time, and they felt that they had expertise in that. <clears throat> and if you introduce other ways of thinking about disability in terms of, hey, what support, what level of support do you need? That had a much more socio-political orientation, which these psychologists were not happy with. Now, there are other psychologists who simultaneously were trying to push the push things in the other direction. And, you know, Jack Stark here in Omaha was an example of that. And he, he had a child with developmental disabilities, or I should say childhood disabilities as well. And there is this desire to really sort of change the definition of intellectual disability in the 1980s and well, 90s and 2000s in a way that made intellectual disability seem less like it was this fixed thing that would never change and make it, un make it understood more as something that could change and that was responsive to the society around it. And that wasn't like a fundamental feature of a person but was about the interaction between a person and their environment. And part of this story was the story of, of doubt, of a sense that if we change things or if we believe in certain capabilities that children with autism or intellectual disability have, then we're not being objective anymore that we're throwing away our objectivity and our scientific norms and expectations and methods. And so in this chapter, I really wanted to highlight the fact, and this is one of the key takeaways from my book more broadly, is that scientific ways of knowing and scientific methodologies can be a major barrier to new, more positive and understanding disability narratives. And that we need to be aware of this fact because in the clinical professions, much of one's identity and role and status is very much wrapped up in science and, and, and their expertise. And that this is a barrier, both on an individual level and a structural level, to introducing more positive perspectives on disability. Okay, Dr. Hogan, thanks so much. I really appreciate your insight about, I won't say about the 
the relationship between social model and the, I mean, medical model in the disability study. So let's go to your chapter five. So for chapter five, I'm wondering about the competing efforts to claim ownership over the area of child development in post-war pediatrics and how this debate intersected with practitioners' different level of interest and understanding about children with dev, dev, sorry, developmental disabilities. Right. Yeah. And, you know, in chapter chapter five, which focuses on pediatrics again, I, I, I explore a similar divide in, in a, within a profession in which you have a group of professionals who have a more um, biological, neurological orientation versus another group of professionals all within pediatrics and all within a sort of specialty in developmental disabilities who have a more psychosocial orientation. And in pediatrics in particular, I explore this sort of battle over jurisdiction, like who owns childhood developmental disabilities, first and foremost. And secondly, and very importantly, who owns child development generally? And this was a really important question in late 20th century pediatrics, because with the polio vaccine and antibiotics, pediatrics didn't have the same caseload as it used to have. And so pediatricians were sort of looking around for a new role, a new thing to offer parents. And what they sort of settled on was developmental screening. And so child development really became a fundamental role that justified the continued existence and importance of pediatrics. And Child development, of course, intersects very closely with the issue of developmental disabilities. And so when specialists in developmental disabilities, and once again, this goes back to sort of the Johns Hopkins story of, uh, of pediatricians being relatively indifferent in the 1950s and 60s to childhood disability and a push among a few pediatricians to say, actually, we need to pay more attention to this. And so there was an effort by people like Arnold Caputi, who was also at Johns Hopkins and a mentee of Robert Cook, to try to make developmental disabilities more prestigious. And to do so, he wanted to create a fellowship program that was specific to developmental disabilities. And ultimately, he really modeled this program in his particular orientation, which was very biological, very neurological. He viewed developmental disabilities as a form of brain damage and thought that we needed to understand them in this way and and really sort of saw lots of different developmental disabilities as all sort of interconnected. So things like autism and cerebral palsy um, and, and other conditions like that, he really viewed as sort of a continuation of a greater whole and really promoted that particular perspective that if we want to understand developmental disabilities and you want to provide better care for children with developmental disabilities, we need to focus on the brain damage, as he saw it, that caused that disability. Now, a different sect of pediatricians were much more interested in the more psychosocial elements of developmental disabilities and tended to focus more on behavioral conditions and particular interventions for that. And so what I trace in this chapter is the ways in which these pediatricians spent more time fighting with each other over who owned what and whose jurisdiction was what and how could they create their professional identity and prestige, and less so on thinking more holistically about how can we provide the best care to all children with disabilities. 
Um, and once again, I think that like in the previous chapter, the sort of attachment to science and prestige and status is a distraction from providing better care and support to children with disabilities. Okay, thank you so much. Um, so last question is that, could you please briefly talk about the contest area for prenatal diagnosis and the disability rights in the field of genetic counseling, maybe in a few sentences? Yeah, so let me just sort of wrap up by saying that my last chapter looks at genetic counseling. And one of the stories here is really this question of who can be a genetic counselor and what is genetic counseling's role? And Part of this story is a story of interactions with the disability community. And there were real tensions, as you can tell from my previous description, between genetic counselors and the disability community, which have sought to be bridged and are difficult to bridge. Because the question becomes, is a genetic counselor somebody whose primary job is to prevent disability or somebody whose primary job is to make um, the world more supportive for children and families with disabilities, adults with disabilities? And where this intersection particularly hits is this issue of can a disabled person, a visibly disabled person, be a genetic counselor? And I interviewed a number of genetic counselors who are visibly disabled, whether they're deaf or blind or have a limb difference or something like that. And they explained, they described some of the pushback they got when they were applying to genetic counseling programs. And this is in the 2000s. This isn't too long ago where people would say, well, you can't really be an objective genetic counselor if you're disabled yourself, or patients won't take you seriously because you have a disability, they'll think that you're biased. And this sort of comes back to this issue of like the importance and the significance of having more disabled clinical professionals generally. And, and I strongly believe that a lot of the challenges that I describe in this book, the barriers, the, the, the resistance to more positive and inclusive narratives of disability could be helped along by having more clinicians with disabilities themselves. And I think my evidence for this is really that they already exist and they've already been doing this work, but also that family members of people with disabilities exist and are doing this work and that we need these more diverse perspectives and experiences in order to make progress. And you know, this is really where my research is going after this book, is looking at the barriers to making clinical professions more diverse, whether that be due to disability or uh, in the realm of race ethnicity as well, which is something that I've been focusing on more recently in, in other fields like physical therapy and occupational therapy. And so often, and I saw this in disability dialogues, and I'm seeing it more and now, it comes down to this issue of um, sort of assuming that to let somebody with disabilities or somebody from a racial or ethnic background, minoritized background into your profession is somehow to lower your and and lower your scientific standards, lower your technical standards, whatever. And so we need to push back on this idea. We need to push back on these practices that presume that to make a more diverse profession is to lower the standards of that profession and recognize that it's to improve that profession. Okay, thank you so much, Hogan. Thanks for your coming and your fantastic talk. So at the end, I want to talk to my own audience. Like, okay, today um, we listened to Dr. Hogan's fantastic talk about his fantastic book, Disability Dialogue. So at the end, I want to recommend everybody listening to this podcast 
consider buying a copy of the book Disability Dialogues, Advocacy Science and the Prestige in Post-War Clinical Professions. Thank you so much. So see you next time. Thank you.